494, Chapter 27 of Anne of Green Gables. Book Talk starts at 1842. Welcome to Cracklit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 494, Heather Gems. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello, and how are you? I am fine and back, back from the land of the Scots. We had a great time on this trip, not a surprise, because Diane and Holiday Vacations were in charge, which always means a good time. And I am in the process of, and it's going to take a while for reasons that will make more sense shortly, I am in the process of putting up vacation videos day by day so that you can get a chance to see what we saw and learn a couple of things because there were some really interesting sites that we got to see. I know this will not shock you, but we had a fantastic group of people, many, many, many people who have been on trips with us before. It is so good to get to see all y'all again. We had Kathy, we had Candy, we had Barb, we had Dr. Bob, we had Christine, we had Jill, we had Chris, we had Liz, and we had Kathy. It was so cool to get to see everybody again. And we got to fold some really, really wonderful people into our mix too. Everybody just was spectacular. And the new people fell in with the previously been on Craftlet Tours group. And it wasn't really that big a surprise because everyone was just fantastic. Lots of people interested in books, lots of people interested in history, lots of people really, really grateful that we had the tour guide we did. Because while she wasn't Peter, and everybody loves Peter, she was a great storyteller. My son, thing one, Aaron, was on the trip. He is now 18 and has graduated from high school successfully. And he came away from the trip giving me and I think all of us the biggest compliment that could be given, which was this. Not too far into the trip, he looked at me and said, you know, mom, you know how you always talk about Craftlet listeners? And I said, yes. And he said, now nah, I get it now. And he just got that smile on his face. And that was as much as he was going to say because he's a teenage boy. But he had a great time. He had a great time meeting everybody, meeting people who I've talked about for a long time, and also just generally being around grown-up people who know things and are interested in things. He also got to try hard cider for the first time and, uh, and several other kinds of drinks as well because the drinking age is lower in Scotland. One of the many benefits of Scotland, we came to find out. So from time to time, I will be able to fold in some of the information that we learned while we were out in a boat in Scotland especially because there is such an enormous Scottish influence on Anne of Green Gables. And along with the Scottish influence, which we've touched on so far, but actually now that I've been there again as an adult adult and 
with Anne of Green Gables in mind, there's some other stuff that I'm going to be bringing up that directly connects back to Scotland. So I'll be folding that information in as we go along. But one of the things that I promised you a long time ago I was going to deal with more fully later is the red hair issue. Now, ratio-wise, number of people with red hair to total number of people that make up the population of a country, Scotland has the most gingers in the world, followed by Ireland, the UK, the United States. And the United States has the largest number of people, not the highest ratio, but the largest number of people with red hair. Now, if you're living in the States, there is a good chance that if you are someone with red hair, you have noticed that you have been treated differently, but the chances of you having been bullied or beaten when you were young because of your red hair is slimmer than if you grew up in the UK or in Europe. The anti-redhead bias that is present today, and I put my little exclamation point and horrified face next to that, it is still bad. It is still bad. There are people who are younger than me who were bullied, beaten up as children because they had red hair. Because what did they learn from their family? They learned that oh, it could be a number of things. Red-haired people have no soul. That's the surprising one there. Red-headed people are, in fact, of the devil. Red-headed people are destined to betray you because at some point in the history of art, people started painting Judas with red hair. And I have to pause for a moment and ask a question of our religious leadership, because we have several people who know their stuff. Why is it that Judas is so reviled? Because it seems to me that had Judas not done what Judas did, Jesus wouldn't have been crucified, wouldn't have had a chance to rise from the grave three days later, and therefore there would be no Christianity. It all hinges on Judas doing what he did, right? So I don't, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad for Judas. It's like he's getting blamed for doing what God needed him to do. I guess it's my overdeveloped sense of injustice kicking in again, but I just feel really bad about that. Anyway, Judas gets painted with red hair. That started the ball rolling, and that was in 1300 and something, the first time he pops up with red hair. So there's been a, a, a long, slow decline after that point where redheaded people were, of course, not surprisingly, redheaded women would have been considered witches. That's the of the devil thing. Dangerous, more passionate, more, which could be anger passion or it could be libido passion. But really the important thing to know is that what makes redheads different from everyone else is the MC1R gene. That's it. That's what it comes down to. If the MC1R gene stops working, it doesn't matter if your body is trying to produce brown pigment or black pigment that would make your hair brown or black. Once it fails to do that, all you'll have left is red. And that is the whole shebang. It comes down to one tiny little genetic modification. Aside from that, the other thing that that genetic modification seems to have an influence on or an impact on is, and I've said this before, and now the the real information is out there because it's even in the New Yorker. Redheads or people with redheaded tendencies, so pale skin, freckles, uh, red highlights in their hair or undertones in your hair, people like that 
like me need more anesthetic and analgesics don't always work properly either. This goes back to me saying when I've had to have oral surgery or something, if the doctor tries to write a prescription for Vicodin, I hand it back because it won't work. I think I mentioned when House was on TV that every time he popped two Vicodin, I used to grumble lightweight because it has no effect on me at all. I will get almost loopy for about 10 minutes, but the pain never goes away. And the loopiness doesn't stay long enough to make it feel fine that the pain doesn't go away. So it all comes down to redheaded genetics. I thought that was pretty fascinating. But more important, of course, for us is that the redheaded bias, especially during Anne's time, was real and occasionally vicious. There were certainly assumptions that were made about people with red hair that were not particularly nice. And terrifyingly, some of that still lingers. Of course, we've seen in many of the books that we've read a very virulent anti-Irish bias. This would feed into that because while Ireland doesn't have as many redheads as Scotland does, Ireland still has redheadedness associated with it. So you get the anti-Irish bias, you get the anti-redheaded bias, and you are not in for a good time at all. So we're going to deal more with the redheadedness later in the episode, but I did want to alert you to why I titled this episode Heather Gems. I think, and this would have been like a decade ago, I mentioned on the podcast that I had had, once upon a time, from my very first trip to Scotland, it was like 30 years ago, I had gotten a piece of jewelry that had compressed Heather put together as the stone. So instead of a gemstone that you mined from the ground, this was compressed heather that was fashioned into a, a solid piece of what looked like stone, and they were called heather gems. Now I forgot the heather gem name, and I kept looking for what I thought had been petrified heather, but it wasn't. It was actually, it had just started, the company had just started when I was there before. They take the stems of the heather plant and bundle them together and do all sorts of nifty things to it with resin and polishes and things like that, and dyes, and they create what look like gemstones. And perhaps because Diane is just such a genius, one of the towns we stopped in happened to be the location of the family-run factory that makes Heather gems. So I was able to replace the piece of jewelry that I had gotten 30 years ago that was stolen out of my luggage. Not actually all that long afterwards. And I couldn't be happier. It was just great. So I have put a link to their website. You can order their jewelry from afar. You don't have to be in Pitlockery. You can be wherever you are and go on the website and order from them. Their prices are really quite reasonable. Um, but again, this isn't a precious gem. This is something that is being handmade, still run by a family, the same family, and it's kind of unique, right? Because how many times do you find somebody who's wearing Heather? Not as a sprig, but as a stone. It's pretty awesome. On top of that, it's been a little while since I've talked to you, and I have several pieces of communication from listeners to read to you. The first is a voicemail from listener Megan. And Megan, I would like to say on behalf of all of us, congratulations on having finished your residency on the day that you phoned in. Here we go. Hi, Heather. My name is Megan. I'm a longtime listener. 
although I did take a long hiatus while I went to medical school and, went and finished my residency. In fact, today is the last day of my residency, and as things slowed down, I got back into knitting and listening to your podcast. I am actually up to date with the book almost, with me, Nana Green Gables, but wanted to call about the use of sugared water as an analgesic for babies. When I learned to do circumcisions, we used uh, what we called sweets for the babies. You know, the baby boy would come in, we would give a little bit for the procedure and right after, and it would completely soothe the baby. It was like magic. So I looked it up. The brand we used was Sweet Ease, S-W-E-E-T dash E-A-S-E. Several companies make those. About a 24% sucrose solution in water. Obviously, no medical advice being given, but this is something that works really well for babies who are having a little bit of pain. Anyhow, um, such a pleasure listening again, and I'm so glad that you are still doing this. It's amazing. Have a good day. All right, so that was our voicemail, and again, congratulations, Megan, and thank you for the percentage solution information for the the baby water, for the, the sugar water for infants. I seem to recall finding that somewhere around the age of two, this stops working, but prior to this, and maybe it's really just up until you're one or 18 months, the sugar treatment will work. In fact, we used to use little homeopathic colic tablets and uh, by Highland, H-Y-L-A-N-D-S. Highland's colic tablets, even if you don't believe in homeopathics, those colic tablets are sugar tablets. Yeah. So... Now we know for real and true why those suckers worked on on Aaron when he was a little, little, little baby. Okay, so our next piece of communication comes from Meredy. She writes, Dear Heather, thank you for the wonderful podcast. I didn't listen to the latest episode yet, so I don't know if you've already gotten an answer on the question of who was sewn into her bodice in which film. But perhaps you are thinking of the 2008 British film The Duchess where Kira Knightley plays an 18th century aristocratic woman. Her intricate and uncomfortable clothes was a constant focal point in that film. And I do seem to remember a scene where she was not sewn into, but cut out of her bodice by cutting the threads with a small pair of scissors. Aha! Of course, that story isn't pre-Elizabethan, but I thought that it might be that scene. Anyway, I do remember that movie, And there is every chance that that is, in fact, what I'm remembering, because the threads were kind of clearly not the threads that constructed the bodice that were used to sew the bodice together before it was on a human being. So thank you, Meredy. That's awesome. And I want to go see that movie again. We also got an email from Meg Campbell. And Meg says, Heather, first, thank you so much for the podcasting work you do. I so look forward to every installment, and I'm particularly enjoying Anne Green Gables. There is so much angst and discord in this country right now. Craftlet reliably brings comfort and sanity. Thank you for being this force. Now, about stinky sponges. (laughs) I've been through all of this before, and I am here to tell you that there is truly only one solution. Switch detergents. If you are using Dawn or Ajax or any of those strong commercial things, your sponges will stink. If you switch to 7th Generation or a name brand natural product, and she said we use Hannaford's here, and that is spelled H-A-N-N-A-F-O-R-D-S, your sponges will stop stinking. I promise. And if you suffer from moldy towel smell or stinking laundry from leaving it in the washing machine too long, 
Not that that would ever happen to any of us, she said, blushing. Switch to seventh generation or other more natural detergents and the smell will stop. Of course, I do keep Dawn on hand for really important things like washing my newly shorn sheep fleece. So Dawn isn't evil or anything like that. But she says, good luck sending good wishes for spring and beyond. And finally, I have a voicemail from longtime listener Henriette. She sent this in forever ago, and it got lost in the move and my spam filter. And thank goodness she pinged me on Facebook and said, uh, did you get this? So now I got it. So Henriette's voicemail is going to be our transition into talking about this week's chapter, chapter 27. Here you go. Hello, Heather. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Henriette, long-time listener from Denmark. And can I just say how much I usually love listening to Craftlit out in the garden? At the moment, it's snowing heavily, so I'm not out in the garden. Uh, and I've been listening while drawing, uh, which is a new craft that I've uh, taken up recently. I'm so happy that we're listening to Anne of Green Gables at the moment. It's really, it's such a joy. I grew up in rural Denmark and I began to read my mother's translated Laura books from her childhood in the 60s. And then I, I discovered that they had more of them at the local library. And when I'd been through all the Laura books, I needed something else. And the librarian suggested the Anne of Green Gable books. So I plowed through all of them. And I think for me, I love both stories equally for for the same reasons, actually. That what stayed with me is that they both became teachers, which was quite an inspiration for me. Uh, but they also have so much agency. And as a girl growing up, I really, I really needed to see other girls and they become young women have so much agency in their life. So they really both inspired me, and they continued to do so. And I started sharing them with my daughter, and through her, it, I really realized that. Uh, they were my childhood sort of goodnight stories for rebel girls and, and similar kind of books. And I hope that they can also be that for her. Thank you. Oh, okay. So I love that. And uh, Henriette, you're going to need to provide me with links to information about the new craft that you are doing. I've been doing a lot of, not surprisingly, watercolors and scrapbooky kind of things in the post trip kerfuffle. <laughs> but I'm, you know, always on the lookout for stuff to share. So this week's chapter, chapter 27, we've talked about the red hair thing, and that plays prominently in this week's chapter. There's a couple of things to keep your ear open for. One is you're going to hear a phrase, vanity and vexation of spirit. This comes from Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 14. You're also going to hear a term, coruscations. I had not come across this word, at least not in, in my memory. Coruscations means sparkles, but not just any sparkles. Sparkles like you would get off of a disco ball. So fractured, fragmented, spinny, changey, diamonds in the air kinds of sparkles. Coruscations. There you go. It's C-O-R-U-S-C-A-T-I-O-N-S. I mentioned a little bit ago that we have seen uh, plenty of anti-Irish bias in books that we have read. Today you're going to hear a different kind of bias, and that's one against peddlers. 
P-E-D-D-L-E-R-S. These were door-to-door salesmen, people who were peddling goods. Sometimes you had people who just had a push barrel full of things that you might find in a thrift store today, just kind of a jumble of things you might need in the house, especially if you're living out and away from town where there are stores, like when Matthew went in to buy the fabric. So clearly people who, and usually men, uh, men who worked as peddlers had to be making a living, otherwise they would have stopped doing it. And while there is no, there isn't necessarily a bias against peddlers qua peddlers, just in general, there would be a concern, I think, a reasonable concern as a mother, that you wouldn't necessarily want your child opening the door to a peddler. You being the adult, having been around the block once or twice, you probably have a better eye for or judgment about strangers who show up on your doorstep. A child being a child would not. So it's it's not so much the the first part of this is not so much just anti-peddler bias as it is protecting the children kind of thinking. But then it gets a little bit more specific. Then it's not just peddlers, it's Italian peddlers and Jewish peddlers. So this is 1908. In the States, we were in the middle of Ellis Island. Canada was also experiencing, as we've already seen with the way that the French are talked about, we have seen plenty of immigration going into Canada as well. And what I found interesting is uh, Italian immigration by 1908 was well underway. But another group that gets mentioned, German Jews, they started coming over in large numbers in the 1840s. In the 1880s, you started to get the Eastern European Jews. Now, the as, you, as happens often with immigrant groups, and I saw this a lot when I was living in the Southwest, people who had been here for a while, the next generation grows up as an American, and the older generation being proud of being an American, they raise their kids to be completely assimilated. And therefore, when they see new immigrants, even if they're coming from the same country of origin, they see new immigrants as, I suppose it's not surprising, but it just makes me sad, as dirty, as poor, as ignorant, as uneducated. Whether the people are or not doesn't really matter. And of course, people fleeing persecution or certain death they are not necessarily going to be able to run with all of their worldly goods on their back, nor are they going to be able to access showers on the way, necessarily. There's some interesting anti-immigrant bias that comes from the generation that got here first, even if they come from the same town. You still saw stuff like that happening. The German Jews who got here in the 1840s and 50s and 60s were not particularly thrilled with the Eastern European Jews who came in in 1880 and after. And certainly by World War I, uh, the the two big waves of Jewish immigration from Germany and, and Eastern Europe had started to slow down. But in the beginning, German Jewish immigrants often worked as peddlers, even in the United States. And in fact, one city that really got its start with German Jewish immigrants was Cincinnati, gateway to the West in many ways, and to trade. Once the peddlers made enough money, they would set up a shop and stores opened, and that's how they got from there to here. So again, all of this is just a way to say, yes, there's 
clearly some bias going on here. It probably has a lot more to do with general safety of kids not being so good at reading adults than it has to do with anything else going on that's more nefarious. And the last thing to clue you in on is a snood. Many of you have come across patterns for snoods, knit and crocheted. However, there are two different kinds. In Scottish use, a hairband that was particularly special or colorful was often worn to the side by an unmarried woman. That would be called a snood in Scotland back in the day. However, in medieval Europe, uh, you saw snoods as being kind of, I guess they were like hairnets is the easiest way to describe them. If you had super, super long hair and you wanted to keep it up off your back, you could just load it into, <laughs> into this hairnet and then pin the front of the hairnet to the front of your hair by your forehead and it would hold your hair up. When you didn't have elastic ties or anything like that, this would be a great solution. So that's the old, old version of a snood. A newer version of a snood and a Scottish one would be the hairband worn by unmarried females. All right, let's listen to the chapter and I will catch you on the flip side. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read by Kim Zuckert Chapter 27 Vanity and Vexation of Spirit Marilla, walking home one late April evening from an aid meeting, realized that the winter was over and gone with the thrill of delight that spring never fails to bring to the oldest and saddest, as well as to the youngest and merriest. Marilla was not given to subjective analysis of her thoughts and feelings. She probably imagined that she was thinking about the aides and their missionary box and the new carpet for the vestry room, but under these reflections was a harmonious consciousness of red fields smoking into pale purply mists in the declining sun, of long sharp-pointed fir shadows falling over the meadow beyond the brook, of still crimson-budded maples around a mirror-like wood pool, of awakening in the world, and a stir of hidden pulses under the gray sod. The spring was abroad in the land, and Marilla's sober middle-aged step was lighter and swifter because of its deep, primal gladness. Her eyes dwelt affectionately on Green Gables, peering through its network of trees and reflecting the sunlight back from its windows in several little coruscations of glory. Marilla, as she picked her steps along the damp lane, thought that it was really a satisfaction to know that she was going home to a briskly snapping wood fire and a table nicely set for tea, instead of to the cold comfort of old aid-meeting evenings before Anne had come to Green Gables. Consequently, when Marilla entered her kitchen and found the fire black out with no sign of Anne anywhere, she felt justly disappointed and irritated. She had told Anne to be sure and have tea ready at five o'clock, but now she must hurry to take off her second-best dress and prepare the meal herself against Matthew's return from plowing. "'I'll settle Miss Anne when she comes home,' said Marilla grimly, as she shaved up kindlings with a carving knife and with more vim than was strictly necessary." Matthew had come in and was waiting patiently for his tea in his corner. 
She's gadding off somewhere with Diana, writing stories or practicing dialogues or some such tomfoolery, never thinking once about the time or her duties. She's just got to be pulled up short and sudden on this sort of thing. I don't care if Mrs. Allen does say she's the brightest and sweetest child she ever knew. She may be bright and sweet enough, but her head is full of nonsense, and there's never any knowing what shape it'll break out in next. Just as soon as she grows out of one freak, she takes up with another. But here, here I am saying the very thing I was so riled with Rachel Lynde for saying at the aid today. I was real glad when Mrs. Allen spoke up for Anne, for if she hadn't, I'd know I'd have said something too sharp to Rachel before everybody. Anne's got plenty of faults, goodness knows, and far be it from me to deny it, but I'm bringing her up and not Rachel Lynde, who'd pick faults in the angel Gabriel himself if he lived in Avonlea. Just the same, Anne had no business to leave the house like this when I told her she was to stay home this afternoon and look after things. I must say, with all her faults, I never found her disobedient or untrustworthy before, and I'm real sorry to find her so now. Well, now, I dunno, said Matthew, who, being patient and wise, and, above all, hungry, had deemed it best to let Marilla talk her wrath out unhindered, having learned by experience that she got through with whatever work was on hand much quicker if not delayed by untimely argument. Perhaps you're judging her too hasty, Marilla. Don't call her untrustworthy until you're sure she's disobeyed you. Maybe it could all be explained. Anne's a great hand at explaining. She's not here when I told her to stay, retorted Marilla. I reckon she'll find it hard to explain that to my satisfaction. Of course I knew you'd take her part, Matthew, but I'm bringing her up, not you. It was dark when supper was ready, and still no sign of Anne, coming hurriedly over the log bridge or up Lover's Lane, breathless and repentant with a sense of neglected duties. Marilla washed and put away the dishes grimly. Then, wanting a candle to light her way down cellar, she went up to the east gable for the one that generally stood on Anne's table. Lighting it, she turned around to see Anne herself lying on the bed, face downward among the pillows. "'Mercy on us,' said astonished Marilla. "'Have you been asleep, Anne?' "'No,' was the muffled reply. "'Are you sick, then?' demanded Marilla anxiously, going over to the bed. Anne cowered deeper into her pillows, as if desirous of hiding herself forever from mortal eyes. "'No, but please, Marilla, go away and don't look at me. I'm in the depths of despair, and I don't care who gets head in class or writes the best composition or sings in the Sunday school choir any more. Little things like that are of no importance now because I don't suppose I'll ever be able to go anywhere again. My career is closed. Please, Marilla, go away and don't look at me.' Did anyone ever hear the like? The mystified Marilla wanted to know. And surely, whatever's the matter with you? What have you done? Get right up this minute and tell me. This minute, I say. There now, what is it? Anne had slid to the floor in despairing obedience. Look at my hair, Marilla, she whispered. Accordingly, Marilla lifted her candle and looked scrutinizingly at Anne's hair, flowing in heavy masses down her back. It certainly had a very strange appearance. And surely, what have you done to your hair? Why, it's green! Green, it might be called, if it were any earthly color. A queer, dull, bronzy green with streaks here and there of the original red to heighten the ghastly effect. Never in all her life had Marilla seen anything so grotesque as Anne's hair at that moment. "'Yes, it's green,' moaned Anne. "'I thought nothing could be as bad as red hair, "'but now I know it's ten times worse to have green hair. 
Oh, Marilla, you little know how utterly wretched I am. I little know how you got into this fix, but I mean to find out, said Marilla. Come right down to the kitchen. It's too cold up here. and Tell me just what you've done. I've been expecting something queer for some time. You haven't gotten into any scrapes for over two months, and I was sure another one was due. Now then, what did you do to your hair? I dyed it. Dyed it? Dyed your hair? And surely didn't you know it was a wicked thing to do? Yes, I knew it was a little wicked, admitted Anne, but I thought it was worthwhile to be a little wicked to get rid of red hair. I counted the cost, Marilla. Besides, I meant to be extra good in other ways to make up for it. Well, said Marilla sarcastically, if I'd decided it was worthwhile to dye my hair, I'd have dyed it a decent color, at least. I wouldn't have dyed it green. But I didn't mean to dye it green, Marilla, protested Anne dejectedly. If I was wicked, I meant to be wicked to some purpose. He said it would turn my hair a beautiful raven black. He positively assured me it would. How could I doubt his word, Marilla? I know what it feels like to have your word doubted. And Mrs. Allen said we should never suspect anyone of not telling us the truth unless we have proof they're not. I have proof now. Green hair is proof enough for anybody. But I hadn't then, and I believed every word he said implicitly. Who said? Who are you talking about? The peddler that was here this afternoon, I bought the dye from him. And surely how often have I told you never let one of those Italians in the house? I don't believe in encouraging them to come around at all. Oh, I didn't let him in the house. I remembered what you told me, and I went out, carefully shut the door, and looked at his things on the step. Besides, he wasn't an Italian. He was a German Jew. He had a big box full of interesting things, and he told me he was working hard to make enough money to bring his wife and children out from Germany. He spoke so feelingly about them that it touched my heart. I wanted to buy something from him to help him in such a worthy object. Then all at once I saw the bottle of hair dye. The peddler says it was warranted to dye any hair a beautiful raven black and wouldn't wash off. In a trice I saw myself with beautiful raven black hair and the temptation was irresistible. But the price of the bottle was 75 cents and I only had 50 cents left out of my chicken money. I think the peddler had a very kind heart, for he said that, seeing as it was me, he'd sell it for fifty cents, and that was just giving it away. So I bought it, and as soon as he had gone, I came up here and applied it with an old hairbrush, as the direction said. I used up the whole bottle, and, oh, Marilla, when I saw the dreadful color, it turned my hair. I repented of being wicked, I can tell you, and I've been repenting it ever since. Well, I hope you'll repent to good purpose, said Marilla severely. And that you've got your eyes open to where your vanity has led you, Anne. Goodness knows what to be done. I suppose the first thing is to give your hair a good washing and see if that'll do any good. Accordingly, Anne washed her hair, scrubbing it vigorously with soap and water. But for all the difference it made, she might as well have been scouring its original red. The peddler had certainly spoken the truth when he declared that the dye wouldn't wash off. However, his veracity might be impeached in other respects. "'Oh, Marilla, what shall I do?' questioned Anne in tears. "'I can never live this down. "'People have pretty much forgotten my other mistakes. "'The liniment cake and setting Diana drunk "'and flying into a temper with Mrs. Lynde. "'But they'll never forget this. "'They will think I'm not respectable. "'Oh, Marilla, what a tangled web we weave "'when first we practice to deceive. "'That's poetry, but it is true. "'And oh, how Josie Pye will laugh!' 
Marilla, I cannot face Josie Pye. I'm the unhappiest girl in Prince Edward Island. Anne's unhappiness continued for a week. During that time, she went nowhere and shampooed her hair every day. Diana alone of outsiders knew the fateful secret, but she promised solemnly never to tell, and it may be stated here and now that she kept her word. At the end of the week, Marilla said decidedly, "'It's no use, Anne. That is fast dye if ever there was any. Your hair must be cut off. There's no other way. You can't go out with it looking like that.' Anne's lips quivered, but she realized the bitter truth of Marilla's remarks. With a dismal sigh, she went for the scissors." Please cut it off at once, Marilla, and have it over. Oh, I feel that my heart is broken. This is such an unromantic affliction. The girls in books lose their hair in fevers or sell it to get money for some good deed, and I'm sure I wouldn't mind losing my hair in some such fashion half so much. But there's nothing comforting in having your hair cut off because you've dyed it a dreadful color, is there? I'm going to weep all the time you're cutting it off if, if it won't interfere. It seems such a tragic thing. Anne wept then, but later on, when she went upstairs and looked in the glass, she was calm with despair. Marilla had done her work thoroughly, and it had been necessary to shingle her hair as closely as possible. The result was not becoming, to state the case as mildly as may be. Anne promptly turned her glass to the wall. "'I'll never, never look at myself again until my hair grows!' she exclaimed passionately. Then she suddenly righted the glass. "'Yes, I will, too. I'll do penance for being wicked that way. I'll look at myself every time I come to my room and see how ugly I am. And I won't try to imagine it away, either. I never thought I was vain about my hair, of all things, but now I know I was, in spite of its being red, because it was so long and thick and curly.' I expect something will happen to my nose next. Anne's clipped head made a sensation in school on the following Monday, but to her relief, nobody guessed the real reason for it, not even Josie Pye, who, however, did not fail to inform Anne that she looked like a perfect scarecrow. I didn't say anything when Josie said that to me, Anne confided that evening to Marilla, who was lying on the sofa after one of her headaches. "'because I thought it was part of my punishment, "'and I ought to bear it patiently. "'It's hard to be told you look like a scarecrow, "'and I wanted to say something back, but I didn't. "'I just swept her one scornful look, "'and then I forgave her. "'It makes you feel very virtuous when you forgive people, doesn't it? "'I mean to devote all my energies to being good after this, "'and I shall never try to be beautiful again.' Of course it's better to be good, I know it is, but it's sometimes so hard to believe a thing, even when you know it. I do really want to be good, Marilla, like you and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy, and grow up to be a credit for you. Diana says when my hair begins to grow, to tie a black velvet ribbon around my head with a bow at one side. She says she thinks it will be very becoming. I will call it a snood. That sounds so romantic. But am I talking too much, Marilla? Does it hurt your head?' My head is better now. It was terrible bad this afternoon, though. These headaches of mine are getting worse and worse. I'll have to see a doctor about it. As for your chatter, I don't know that I mind it. I've gotten so used to it. Which was Marilla's way of saying that she liked to hear it. End of chapter 27 So Marilla likes Anne's chatter now. 
That just made me smile. Yay, Marilla. <laughs> so good. So it ended on a happy note. Something's going on with Marilla and her headaches, though, which we're going to have to learn more about. But oh my gosh, Anne. Anne and her hair. Now that her red hair is gone, I'm sure she's missing it, red or otherwise. But it's true that dyes, while they could be permanent, getting the mixture right for the kind of color you're going to get at the end is going to be difficult just on its own, especially if you aren't particularly knowledgeable about how to make them. And this was an inexpensive dye. But it is also true that if you have ever tried to do anything with anything that's red, changing the color is going to be tricky, whether that's a shirt or, or laundry that has turned pink because of a red item, or if you have red hair and you've tried to dye it, say, blonde, it's probably not going to come out blonde. Gray hair isn't even going to be that silvery gray. It's going to be kind of a light off-white because the, the red hair base just deals with the lack of melanin slightly differently. So it isn't a real surprise that the dye didn't work on Anne's hair. It doesn't mean anything nefarious was going on with the peddler trying to pawn off lousy dye. It, even if it had been expensive, there's a good chance that it wouldn't have worked. Green is a sad, sad result, of course, but not, not a huge surprise. I thought there was a marvelous Anne moment when, when Lucy Maud Montgomery describes her as sliding to the floor. She is so, so overwhelmed with sadness and pain that she can't even sit on the floor. She has to slide off the bed and onto the floor. I love that. I think I've done that. <laughs> it's a great image. Uh, it's also interesting that she, she paid for this with her own money, uh, out of her chicken money, which must mean that if she's responsible for the chickens, then when they sell extra eggs, like people still do out here, they'll uh, leave a sign out that says fresh eggs in a cooler, and you put some money in a little tin and take the eggs you want out of the cooler. And that money in Anne's world would have gone to her, at least in part. So she was, she was able to make some pocket money, which is pretty cool. If you recognize the, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, you should know that who does that come from? That comes from Sir Walter Scott, fabulous Scotsman. We went to his home. You will hear more about him from time to time from me because I think we all just loved Abbotsford, the, the home that he built. However, the Tangled Web line comes from Marmion. It comes from Canto Six, The Battle, and it is stanza 17. Now, the whole concept of selling your hair, and comes up with that and says, oh, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if I had cut it all off in order to sell it, because wig makers could use that. Uh, of course, they're not going to get a whole lot of use out of green hair. But we've seen this happen before. We've seen, not in a book that we've done, but in Les Miserables, you have Fantine selling her hair. In Little Women, you have Joe March selling her hair. That's 1868. Uh, Little Women was not unknown to Lucy Maud Montgomery. She quite liked the books. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Uh, you have the, the wife selling her hair to buy the husband uh, a Christmas present. So this wasn't an unknown quantity. It's certainly a, a plausible thing to have done, especially if you needed the money. And we have certainly literary predecessors to Lucy Maud Montgomery putting it in here. And that 
brings us pretty much to the end of the chapter and this episode. I do have two more things to tell you about, though. The first is that I got a job, an actual real grown-up job that is going to take me out of the house. I won't be working from home anymore and is going to make my schedule more interesting as far as the podcast goes. Uh, I start next Monday, July 9th. So if there is not an episode that week, you know why. But Justin and I are going to figure out a schedule and Craftlet will continue. I certainly can't stop mid-book. And knowing me, I'm not going to be able to stop anyway. So Craftlet keeps going. However, at the end of Room with a View, I think I am going to have to stop doing the premium episodes. I'm figuring this out. And once I'm actually in place at the office, I will have a better idea of what life is going to be like moving forward. So I will be sending out a newsletter with details as soon as I have details to give you. Uh, if you haven't already signed up for the newsletter, please go to craftlit.com slash 494 and you will be able to sign up there and get previous newsletters as well as the, the next one that I send out with actual information on it about how things are going to work out as far as we are concerned. And the very last thing to share with you, I know this actually comes from a premium book, but I think this link is important enough, especially with the emails that we received and I read to you earlier in the episode. I got a message from Deb B. And she said, I just wanted to send a link to a lovely essay by Forster. This is E.M. Forster who wrote A Room with a View. It's one I reread every so often. Pieces of it float up in my thoughts every now and again. I reread it during this Room with a View break week to see if it still resonates after my first readings decades ago. And yep, it's a keeper. This is an I Believe essay from E.M. Forster. And it's definitely worth a read. The link is at craftlet.com slash 494. And barring disaster, you will hear from me again next week. Take care. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. I hope. <laughs> Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlet listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.